So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Natalie Joachim is a magnetic voice of one of the unexpected aspects of our globalized world. New generations reclaiming and falling in love anew with the places their parents left. In an odyssey through music, the songs of women, Natalie Joachim is immersing in Haiti's ecological and political traumas, as well as its beauty and its promise. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Natalie Joachim is a Brooklyn-based flutist and vocalist and co-founder of the urban art pop duo Flutronics. I interviewed her at the On Being studios. She was in the Twin Cities rehearsing as part of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra's Liquid Music series. Well, I would like to start um, where I always start my conversations, Mm -hmm. and I, I wonder how you would talk about um, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood, however you would, you would describe that. Sure. Um, it's an interesting question, I think, for me. Today, I don't really uh, consider myself a religious person, though I do consider myself a very spiritual person. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up was interesting. My dad actually uh, went to seminary school. For oh, a very long time, yeah, uh, before meeting my mom. Was he Catholic? Yes. Oh, okay. And um, so I almost didn't exist as a result <laughs> of religion. Because of religion. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess the, the human side of him got, got the better of him eventually. Um, that or my mom was, I guess, that irresistible. But um, yeah, so religion was an interesting thing growing up for us. It was We went to church... Um, when we were very young. And certainly both of my parents really have always instilled a sense of spirituality in us. Um, So I do think about that. And certainly this project has brought me back to thinking a lot about um, spirituality in a very different way than I thought of it in my childhood. From being in Haiti. Um, I mean, you know, I also wonder if Music, it, it sounds, I mean, music I know is part of Haitian culture. It sounds like it's woven throughout the experience of being with family for you. And I wonder if you would even maybe not think of it that way, but if music would be something you would talk about as part of the spiritual element of your childhood, of your, of your life. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so interesting because... Music has always been a part of my life, as you mentioned, not, not just because I'm Haitian, but, but also because I was very drawn to it as a child. And I do think that many of my most spiritual moments have been experienced through music in that it moves you in a way that you oftentimes can't explain. And I think I find that to be a spiritual experience myself. And... 
you know, so many of the songs that I've been including in this project really uh, do connect back to spirituality in that many of them, like the one that we just heard, uh, is called La Mise Pas Douce, is really a song that came over to Haiti from Africa. It was really, it's a very old song. The rendition that I sort of fell in love with is one by a woman named Toto Bicent, who um, is sort of one of my muses for this project. Mm. And... I love the spirit of it, and I, I can't possibly sing that song and not feel like I'm having um, a, a spiritual experience. So it's still so... I, I do very much connect music to spirituality in my own life. You know, one of the things you've talked about is um, that this part of Africa where the Haitian people, where slaves were brought in the 16th century, um, uh, that one of the traditions there is Yan Valu, and this was new to me. Um, but you, you've made this striking statement that you said Yan Valu music is to Haiti as the Negro spiritual is to America. This it is certainly like this is. New information. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, again, I think partly why I wanted to start with that song is because it's so iconically Haitian, but mm-hmm. um, really that the message of that song works in very much the same way as the Negro spiritual, um, in that at face value the words themselves are quite innocent. But as we know, so many spirituals were sung in cotton fields as a way of spreading messages yeah. and um, as a way of letting people know that there was going to be a way to lift themselves out of misery. Uh, La Mise Pas Douce actually translates to misery is not sweet. And um, it was a way of simply stating that I'm not well at this moment, and I'm in this place, but I'm not of this place, mm. and I plan to find life elsewhere. Um, and that, to me, is such a song of revolution and really is one of the predecessors to the Haitian Revolution and a song, one of many songs that I think did empower and help covert messages be spread amongst slaves. Now, you are known, um, you, are, you are a flautist, you play mm-hmm. the flute. And I just wanted, you know, you, you said that your first instrument was piano and that you were terrible at it. Very bad. I'm not sure I believe Still that. Still very bad. <laughs> My first and only instrument was the flute, and I was really terrible at it. <laughs> but you, and you said that you fell in love with the flute, and maybe you're going to play the flute for us a little later, are you? Um, <laughs> tell, so tell me about that love affair. Like, what, did, what do you love about the flute? I'd like to hear it in your how you would describe it. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, to me, it is, of the instruments, it is the closest to the human voice, I find. Mm. Um, I really feel like the way that we create sound, the way that we get our instruments to sound is, you know, extremely natural and comes, it has so much to do with your breath and your body. Um, in a way that ha- is very different than I think other woodwind instruments are certainly, and and also you know other instruments where you're not really using your breath and articulation mm. in that way. So to me, I think I was fascinated because I was like, you can use your breath to do what? You can you can get you can get this instrument to to do what? And it's no wonder that it's one of the oldest instruments around. People have been making flutes since they. Right. have figured out how to make anything. So um, I think that that's no wonder to me because to me it's an extension of my body. It's an extension of my voice. It's such a, it's very disconnected to my physicality in a way that feels quite natural. So when I first heard the sound of the flute, it was easy to be drawn to. I think probably in retrospect because using my voice was something that I was so used to and like found so much joy and love in growing up as a child. And mm-hmm. so 
it feels like an extension of me. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the Haitian-American flutist Natalie Joachim. We're with a live audience at the On Being studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis. You're part of this liquid music project series at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and um, your project is Femme d'Haïti, Tell us what that is. Tell us the origin story. Yes. So um, I actually love this story um, really because it's so rare as a musician, as a creator, as a composer that you find people to invest in ideas before you even really have a clear idea of what the idea actually is. Um, And this project started very much in that way. Years, a couple years ago now, I was having a casual conversation um, with my father and my stepmother, and uh, and they live in Haiti now, correct? They do yeah. about eight months, all of the cold weather months. So about eight months out of the oh, year, okay. <laughs> they're down there. Mm-hmm. Um, they managed to swing through in the fall and sort of late spring and early summer, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, they spend they live predominantly down there um, most of the year, but. We were having a a casual conversation um, about music in Haiti. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. And when people think of Haitian music, often, uh, like for me, what comes to mind when I think of like what's popular, artists that are popular, there are tons of like, basically Haitian compa music is like a very big thing there. So there are all these bands of like 10 dudes, 12 dudes, just like groups, huge groups of men, like, coming together to make music. There's, every once in a while, there's, like, one woman in the band who, like, sings backup vocals or something, but, like, not mostly the sort of icons of um, Haitian music, like, the popular bands that every, if you're going to know one Haitian band, it's, like, definitely a band that has 14 dudes in it. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, and so I started thinking about that, and because it's such a distinct contrast to my actual experience mm-hmm. of music in Haiti, um, which, you know, we mentioned my grandmother, she, you know, we sang songs often together. Um, and I mean, just the way, the way music is woven into the everyday. Exactly right. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a really, it's really a big challenge to walk through the countryside of Haiti and not hear women's voices. That's really what you hear. You hear women's voices like, working, cleaning their houses, doing their laundry, walking kids, cooking, like that's, and to me, that was my, my growing up too, you know, like even my, I have such funny memories of my mom just like blasting Haitian music on Sunday when she'd be cleaning the house. And that was just, that was just what was going to be happening was that there was going to be like singing throughout the house. So, um, it was interesting to me that there were so few female voices represented in popular Haitian music. And that piqued my interest, of course. And so I started to look into them, and I found some very beautiful music. And I also found these incredible stories of um, women who really use their voices as a tool, for the most part, for social activism, whether or not they themselves identified as social activists. But um, they, that really was what it boiled down to. So many of them wanted to use their voices to help lift the people of Haiti up, to help empower the, the people of Haiti to really fight for themselves and create a life that is better for them every single day. And so for that to be the through thread, I was like, well, if there's only going to be about a dozen of them, it's pretty, that's a pretty solid. Was like, that true? Were there just a dozen of them? There, there really are. So now, so I've now spent the past 
like year and a half, almost two years really doing this research. And there are maybe closer to like 20 or so, but there's definitely fewer than 30. So, and that's digging deep and like going everywhere. We can talk a little bit about the challenges of researching something. Yeah, you, you, were, you wrote a, a diary, which was interesting. Yes. Travel journal, yeah. So, so, so there's the phenomenon of women singing all the time everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then there's this very small number of women who are known to be artists or who've made music a career. Right. Okay. So, you know... I, it was interesting to me, so I was like, I want to find out more about these women. I want to find out how they connect to me, and I think that feeling stems from, especially in the past couple of years, feeling like such a strong sensation to connect to my own cultural identity, mm-hmm. to embrace that and to um, celebrate who I am. Certainly, being Haitian-American... I feel lucky in many ways because I have access to so many more years of my history than most African-Americans have. Um, And that's amazing. Haiti was the first um, free black republic and uh, they really were the first to abolish slavery and um, the Haitian revolution was an epic thing to happen, um, you know, at the time that it happened. And, And so for me, the fact that we have, you know, that much more time where we were able to hold on to our history, hold on to and keep record of who we are, how we got our names, where we came from, um, our fa- what land our family is from, and, and even being able to begin to trace back slowly but surely all the way to, ha- to Africa, that's something that like yeah. most black people in America don't have access to. And for me in the past few years, that's become a major it's become a really a, a thing that's very valuable to me, and uh, one that I feel that is my distinct responsibility to um, hold on to, and also for me to be able to pass on to my nieces and nephews someday, family. Like that's that's huge to me. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to find out more about these women, and to me, to be gifted the time to explore this as an option, as a creative option, has been life-changing, honestly, and I think has allowed me for the first time to feel like I have found a creative voice that feels so much of me. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I'm thinking, though, when you talk about this desire and this passion to connect, you know, past and present and, and your deepest identity, um, so much of the fear and confusion and anguish and inequity that we're confronting now, that we have no choice but to confront, has to do with the repercussions of globalization as it has been enacted. But I think one of the most interesting, kind of a real paradox of globalization, too, is it's bringing us back to our particular identities. It's not doing away with that. I, very much this, this quest you've been on yeah. is also a quest of our time. I think that that's true. And, and, you know, to me, we are all doing each other a service in holding on to that right now, especially because the real challenge here is that we have so many people who just don't understand each other mm-hmm. and therefore are scared of one another because we don't understand our, each other's histories. We don't embrace each other's histories as a human history. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a, really, um, that's a really big challenge to work through collectively um, as a global community. Um, and certainly as American citizens, I think it's high time that we start looking at that. And, and I do think that each of us doing our part to really hold on to who we are and share who we are is mm-hmm. a very oh, could potentially be a wonderful bridge to bringing us all closer together
listen again and share this conversation with Natalie Joachim through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm in a live conversation with the Haitian-American flutist and vocalist Natalie Joachim. She is a magnetic voice of one of the unexpected aspects of our globalized world, new generations falling in love anew with the places their parents left. As part of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra's Liquid Music series, she's immersing in Haiti's traumas and beauty through the songs of women. Here's what I'd love to hear, have you like unfold for us. Um, another time, another question you were asked once. Favorite place in the world, Haiti. My family is from there, so it represents love, heritage, beauty, and tradition for me. So, talk to us about Haiti, and let's like take those words, Haiti and love. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, It's an amazing thing to be from a place with people who have so little and are so willing to give you everything. Um, Whatever they can, however they can help you, whether it's just a tiny bite of food, you would never walk into a Haitian person's home and not be offered food. And I'm talking about people who have nothing. They will run outside to grab a mango off a tree, if that's all that they can find, to make sure that they're, they're, they're helping you. Um, and they'll do anything to, to, really, to really support one another. And that is, to me, um, at the very core of what it means to be Haitian. Those are the people that I grew up with in my family, certainly my parents, certainly our family, friends, extended family, close colleagues who are are Haitian, every single Haitian person that I have ever encountered is 100% like that. Mm. Um, And so it's so easy to feel loved in Haiti, you know? It really is, and I think that that's something that extends far beyond family. It's just a cultural tradition mm-hmm. uh, and, and really about a cultural practice of giving. And so... So lo- love as an action. It's yes. an action orientation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and it's inherent. And to me, there's something very beautiful about people who can find it in themselves to love when everything around them has crumbled, right? For me, on my hardest day, it's very hard to give, to continue to give to people if I feel emptied by the circumstances of my life at any given time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's something about the constant spirit, the, like, sort of can-do spirit of, like, even if everything around you has crumbled there's a hope that you will find a way out of it. And the first step in getting out of it is by giving love. Not by like seeking to take from anyone else, but by giving in the moment when you have nothing left. And so that as a practice, that as like seeing that in my parents and my relatives growing up is something that I think has been instilled in me in a really beautiful way and 100% to me is synonymous with Haiti, that, that feeling, that mm. sense of, of giving and, and sharing love, if that's all you have to give, is like, to me, distinctly what it means to be Haitian. Mm. And what about um, Haiti and beauty? Oh my gosh! <laughs> um, Your writing from there is so visual. It's because it is. It's sort of you can't. I it's mean, very lush. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's just. So beautiful. And for me, you know, I do a lot of concert touring. I've gotten to see a lot of the world. Um, And I feel really lucky for that. But I have to say that Haiti for me is one of the only places that I've been that hasn't, that's like so much of the country is untouched by sort of like 
tourism or commercialism or anything. Like it hasn't been sort of, most of the country has not been put into this sort of like cookie cutter box of like, here are pretty suburbs or whatever. Um, There's no gap. Yeah. (laughs) No, there is not. (laughs) I I only laugh so hard because if you could picture the actual marketplace in Haiti, it's like very much not the gap. I don't know why I chose the gap, but you know what I mean. I love the gap. We can all name the 10 stores on every street. So, um, yeah, but it's it's just so rich and lush and beautiful. There's um, the countryside there where there's just a lot of very... My family still lives on an active farm, and so there's just beautiful countryside. There's the beach that is like water, the color of the water you can't even explain to people and the warmth of it. It's amazing. We do have one small mountain, but it is a mountain. So some people might call it a hill, but they we do call it a mountain. Um, and so, you know, you can go up and in, into the mountains too. It sort of has all of the richness of terrain and um, it's beautiful. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. And I have to say, um, I always think of Haiti because especially, you know, as these natural disasters are happening, I think of Haiti often because I'm like, you know, one awesome thing about being a poor person in Haiti is that you never, you're never going to run out of food, right? There's always a coconut tree, a mango tree. There's always like, there's always something and the the land will Mm -hmm. always give Mm -hmm. to you, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an amazing thing. It's also terrifying when there are just like hurricanes happening left and right because it means that a lot of that natural landscape gets destroyed. And that's when you get into a real situation of like hunger or, or really worrying about people surviving in those circumstances. But I do think it's also a beautiful to, thing to think about the fact that for so, for hundreds of years, the land in Haiti has continued to give back to us. It hasn't left us behind. Mm-hmm. And so many of these songs actually like stem back to voodoo heritage and culture where, um, you know, there's voodoo spells, but there's also this like beautiful side of like storytelling and um, thinking of spirituality and that you're worshiping and being grateful for the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth because I really think that in Haiti, it gives. It's constantly giving to you. It's something that has never left Haitian people behind. And so it's a beautiful place full of incredible resources. And I... I myself have a beautiful home. I have a beautiful family home in Haiti, so you're all welcome to come. My dad himself, if he were here, would invite you for sure. (laughs) It sounds like he would. Um, So I wanted to ask you about, and the other two words in this, you know, the the way you described your love for Haiti is heritage and tradition. You just mentioned voodoo, and I, I just want to say, I was thinking, getting ready to speak with you, about a conversation I had a few years ago with Patrick Bellegarde Smith, who is a scholar. I mean, he's Haitian American and also a scholar. Like we might be related. My Are, my really? well, mom's side a, of the family is Bellegarde. Bellegarde, so. yeah. <laughs> I know it's small a, place. <laughs> well, and he became a, a scholar of, of voodoo, um, and you know that was when I learned that. Uh, I mean, that voodoo is about so much. And it's, in fact, not about this image of crazy shamans sticking dolls into pins. That that actually came from a movie in, I think it was 1932. What? Um, with Bella Lugosi playing a voodoo chief. And the, the movie was called White Zombie. And, you know, at that point, the U.S. Army was occupying Haiti, right, to control the popular uprising. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, you know, voodoo and Haiti are kind of synonymous in the American imagination from this ridiculous source. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, I, but so, so I'd be curious about this project you've undertaken. Um, and I know we didn't ever, you know, speaking about this moment, I mean, there's tumult around race and otherness. There's tumult around women I think a lot about um, there's this young um, African-American, actually, a minister who's a, one of our fellows named Jen Bailey, who likes to point out that the language of apocalypse in the Bible is actually, the meaning of that word apocalypse is an uncovering, hmm. which is also a way to talk about what we're in the middle of here. Certainly. 
yeah, that we can't, things we can't not see anymore. Um, but some people are on a terrible blunt end of all that. Many people. Um, so I digress. Um, but I'm curious, like I'm living in this moment, being an artist, being a woman, being African-American, Haitian, and, and then going back there now and exploring music and women and this country. Like how, what have you learned about your heritage and tradition, perhaps that you didn't know before or that you know more vividly now? Um, a lot. <laughs> um, I think that has been, there's been some beautiful music to come out of this, but to me more than anything, the, the research aspect of this has been such an incredible learning process for me um, to really understand, to go back to the beginning of history of Haiti. How did, how did we get there? How did we become this place? And who are we? Is, uh, it's been an incredible moment of discovery for me. Um, but also just to learn a little bit about, um, to learn a lot more about the dictatorship that my parents left, you know, they were living in Haiti and immigrated to the United States in the 70s um, when it was a very challenging time. I think for the country, it was a, a very rough time because essentially anyone who was a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an, an intellect of any kind who could empower poor people or uneducated people um, were being executed left and right. That was a reality of like, and so there you have this very sad time where there's this like mass exodus of some of the most sort of educated people of the country for fear of their own lives, really. Um, and learning more about that dynamic, uh, that dictatorship, understanding what it did to poor people, and understanding that a lot of this music that I've uncovered was a threat in that way. Mm -hmm. um, Haiti has two national languages, Haitian Creole and French, and most people in the countryside um, speak Haitian Creole. The, mo the more educated you are, the more likely you were to have learned French. And in many ways at that time, through the 70s, through time, really that was used as a tool to keep the uneducated uneducated, to speak in French. And if they couldn't understand it, oh well. And so many of these women going back and singing songs in Creole, using these songs that were used as a way to to have slaves share their messages, okay. messages that are still very relevant today. Certainly they were 30 years ago. Certainly they were 100 years ago. And so um, that they were giving power back to people in that way. And I think I never really understood that much about um, the real like lineage or history in a, in a linear way, I think, mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Haiti. It's also the type of thing where I think similar to the Great Migration, you find in America, you find that there's a certain, there's a generation of African Americans who don't talk about what used to be, right? Who have like this memory of slavery, a memory of Jim Crow, a memory of segregation, and they just don't talk about it. I know so many African Americans who are like, I don't know, my grandmother just like literally will never talk to you me. Know, about I think that's that often thing. true of the first generation after trauma. It was also true of that first generation of Jews after the Holocaust. Exactly right. Yeah. And so the same thing is, I think, true of so many Haitians who left the country at the same time that my parents did, where they talk to you about it, you know, sort of vaguely, but they never tell you all of the history. And mm -hmm. so for me to be able to just really f discover that and to discover these connections through music has been very eye-opening and explains to me so, so much of, of the history of how we got where we are uh, and why and who the players were in making it so that Haiti is what it is today, what some people consider not so great, but it's wonderful. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the Haitian-American flutist Natalie Joachim. We're with a live audience at the On Being studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis. 
In your Liquid Music Travel Journal, which I'd recommend everybody go read online. Um, so, like, for example, you went to the National Theater. Oh, my gosh. And so, I mean, that's kind of this both and, right? So just tell, you know, describe that place mm-hmm. and, and that contradiction there. Yeah. So my, you know, it's interesting to hear my parents talk about the Haiti of their childhood, what it would have been like to go to, like to, to think of the National Theater was this like beautiful, gorgeous place where so many of the most iconic concerts that people, live concerts that people can remember took place in Haiti. And to visit it today, you'd be very confused by the state of things. The theater is in major disrepair. We, I, I don't think, even think I was supposed to walk on the stage, actually, but I did anyway because I'm a rule breaker. But uh, <laughs> I didn't break my legs, so it's fine. Um, and there was a point, actually, when I, I walked inside the theater, I walked to the very top seat. It's sort of, it's an amphitheater, like, in the round. And you can see out to the most gorgeous landscape is stunning. It's really beautiful. And to think of like this open air theater was this beautiful place where there's so much history. To get to the National Theater, we had to drive through a pretty crazy part of Port-au-Prince. There's just trash everywhere. There's like, it's just in disarray. The whole place is in disarray. And it's crazy to me, like it was at that moment to experience being in such a spiritual space, really, to mm-hmm. feel, you can feel the energy of the history of that space. Um, especially as a musician, to me, a concert hall is a place that I consider to be home. It's a, it's a safe space for me. So I like that feeling of being in a space where so many other musicians have shared their gifts. And it broke my heart to see that like that part of town had become just you know, not a place you want to be. Yeah, you you wrote, um, I mean, you wrote, you described the, how, the, the gore, what was gorgeous and moving and, and exalting about it. And, and then you also wrote, as you left, you know, truth be told, my heart sank when we drove out of the dream gates into the nightmare streets covered in trash. There was literally a river of it. How did this happen to such a beautiful place? And I'd really like to know how you start to think through that question in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Haiti has been the victim of a very long series of unfortunate circumstances, many of which were intentional. It's not easy being the first successful slave uprising. You can imagine that there were people who... Um, we're pretty upset about that because slavery was an economy. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, to find out that your slaves could revolt and suddenly not do all of this work for free was going to hurt the pockets of very many people. And so I think there... And you didn't want it to set an example. Certainly not. You didn't didn't want anyone to get an inkling of an idea that they too could accomplish that thing. And so... I think that some circumstances have been unfortunate, natural disasters. That's the luck of the draw of where we are, where we landed on the, on the map, you know. But I think certainly in terms of politics and economics, much of that was deliberate. Much of that had to do, unfortunately, with the United States sort of interjecting themselves. And, um, you know, even though slavery was gone, I think the effects of colonialism are still very strong everywhere, even right here. And so, you know, it does hurt my heart to see a river of trash and think, how did we get to this place? But then I also think about, like, where did all these bottles actually come from? And I think if you look at any of those labels, you're bound to see the United States on very many of them. Um, And so this idea of, like, 
having in, in many ways Haiti become dependent on the United States has left us in a pretty tragic state. And then you couple that with a handful of corrupt politicians, not unique to, to Haiti, they're all over the world. <laughs> um, and you have, you have real people who are left in unfortunate living circumstances. Mm. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we... I do see hope in getting us out of that place. I think of it often, and I will say right now, I'm not the only person looking to connect to their heritage, as you said earlier. Right. I'm certainly right. not the only Haitian American, and I know that there are so many Haitians of my generation who are doing the thing that I think is very important, which is going back, identifying and like claiming our homes uh, reclaiming the language, reclaiming our space, and making sure that we don't lose that so that we can, you know, make up for this mass exodus of educated people who left a generation ago and make a begin to make a difference. And I do see it happening. I've experienced it myself in so many beautiful parts of Haiti. Um, and I find, I see hope in that. Mm. So just maybe leave us with one more picture from your project. And this is um, of a person, and I want to say her name correctly, Emirante de Pradine. Emirante, yeah. Emirante, mm -hmm. who, um, who died not long ago. Just a week ago. A week a ago. A little over a week ago now. Introduce us to her. She, it sounds like she was a very important person oh in this gosh. journey you've been on recently. <laughs> yeah. Um, Emirant was sort of the last uh, living icon of what was really known as ha Haiti's golden age, a time where there was a huge coming up of, in the arts especially, music, literature, art, uh, was very active in, at, the t at this time um, when she was sort of at the, the top of her career. So when would, would this have been mid-20th century? Uh, yeah, well, not not quite early twentieth century. Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. Mid mid twentieth century. We're in twenty eighteen now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mid mid twentieth century, and um, she was in. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I didn't really know anything <laughs> about her before this project, mm -hmm. um, and essentially, I was able to meet her. Through a roundabout circuit of people who were like, "Oh yeah, you could go to her house. This, she, she's usually hanging out at this place at this, on this day." And then I showed up, and she wasn't and there. And she was what, 93. She was 98 90, at the time. She turned 99 right. in September. In September. Yeah. Right. So my, in my mind, I was like, "I'm never going to meet this woman." But we drove. We ended up finding out that she ha she had a music school in a super remote, super remote village, and we walk into this building. And there she is. <laughs> there she is at 98 years old, just standing there, an icon, a voice that so many Haitian people really value. There she is. I'm just standing it across from her. And she had also left Haiti for a while, for a while. right? Many and of them come did, back. Yeah. She sure did. Yeah. Um, and, and that, I, I think, again, is a trend that's really happening. Mm -hmm. So many people left Haiti because being educated and trying to use your voice to do anything that was going to educate others became a real challenge of safety. And so she came to the United States, and she was a, da a dancer, actually, for a long time, and uh, ended up marrying her husband. And, and then she eventually went made her way back because she felt like it was her duty, really, to to take everything that she had learned in her life and go back and just give back to Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, that's why my parents have gone back. That's why I hope to go back. I think like people want to reinvest in, in, in the people. Um, and so it was amazing to me to be able to meet her, uh, to know that in her old age at 98, she was still giving back up to the very end um, at this music school. But what... Oh my gosh. So on last Saturday was when she passed away and I got the message about her passing and like fell to the floor in my kitchen and felt a real sense of loss um, because she was such an amazing spirit to hear her talk about her life, to hear her talk about her connection to music, 
to hear her talk about her deep belief and pride in the people of Haiti, to hear her advice to me as a young woman trying to sort of make my way in the arts, to receive support and love from her in that moment was a gift that I will forever be grateful for. I guess I want to know first, how did you get started in music? My father was a musician, so I was born in a music house. ask you one more question and then I, I think we get to hear some more of your music. Yeah. Um, just, we've been talking around this the whole time, but you know, you think about right now and actually think in generational time, which is what you're doing, mm-hmm. which I think is what we all have to do. You know, what, what makes you despair and, and what gives you hope? What makes me despair I think is in This is a complicated question for me, but I think at the end of the night, when I go to bed, what makes me worried about the future is something that I know is very important to both of my parents, and that's a lack of education or a desire for people to restrict access to education, to me, is the biggest assault on any um, society, really. I think to make sure that our children are educated, to make sure that the next generation is smarter and stronger than we are, and to make sure that we all spend every day continuing to learn about the world, about one another, um, is of critical importance for the future of this planet. And so small attacks and big attacks on education is a thing that makes me despair. What's the other side? What gives you hope? Hope. (laughs) I was in such despair for a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What gives me hope? Um, I think what gives me great hope is the continued connection to love and loving one another. I think that our ability to love, to really go back to the beginning of this conversation, is something that is truly innate in all of us. I think we are all born with the ability to love one another and to receive love is one of the biggest gifts, I think. More, better than any, it's a better feeling to me than anything else. Um, and that people are interested in continuing to learn to love one another. Um, And hopefully, from this conversation, joining in the Haitian spirit of finding a way each day to give love to someone you know who needs it is something that does give me hope that we're all going to make it through somehow. Thank you. Thank you. Natalie Joachin is a flutist and co-founder of the urban art pop duo Flutronics. She'll be premiering her complete work, Femme d'Aïti, commissioned by the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra's Liquid Music Series, on March 14th in St. Paul. Je t'ai tant cherché, mon Seigneur et mon Roi. Je t'ai tant cherché dans la nuit. Moi, tu m'as dit que tu étais la vie. Alors, je 
Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Loren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, and Jeffrey Basoy. Special thanks this week to Zach Rose and Kate Nordstrom and all of the wonderful people at the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. And a special shout-out, too, to Chris Hegel, who weaves the art and craft of our show week after week. Sometimes, as in this hour with Natalie Joachim, he turns song into part of the conversation. He's also producing the new podcast On Being Studios just launched, This Movie Changed Me, where movie music and dialogue are part of a rich, joyous experience. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production.